0: Good morning. If you have a Bible, let's open it together. Um, Luke chapter 14 is where we're going to be this morning. Over the last four weeks, I've been in other places, but it's good to be back. My name is Tom. I'm on staff here at Calvary, and it's good to see you. Uh, I've missed being here, but happy to be with you this morning. And uh, this is going to be the last message in the series On Luke until January. We're going to take a pause here after this morning. Why are we in the book of Luke? Because we love Jesus, we love the Gospels, we love all the Word of God, but it's great for our church to take some time in the Gospels to see the actions of Jesus and the way he intersects with people and to hear his words, because we truly do want to be a Christ centered community of people. We want to be centered on Christ. It's not so much about us as as it is about Christ. So every week when we come together, it really is our prayer that we would meet with Jesus, hear from him, and our lives would be different because we know something more about him and the way he wants us to live. And today's passage has that in it. Jesus is our Savior. He's the Master. He's the Lord. He's the King of Kings. He's the Great I Am. He's the Creator of all things. We have a theological statement that has uh, something said about Christ. I'm going to put it on the screen. And from time to time, it's just helpful to remind ourselves what we believe. Maybe you would say this out loud with me. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. This is our Jesus. He is the Great One the Lord of Lords, and King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Wonderful Counselor, the Promise Keeper, the Good Shepherd, the Light of the World, the Living Water. He is all of those things. And if you love Jesus, say amen. Okay, the Gospels are about Jesus. They tell us who he is. And his words are important. Our section today ends with this. Let him who has ears to hear, hear. If you hear the words of Jesus, hear it, embrace it. And I pray as we look at the episodes of the early part of chapter 14, we might get a glimpse of who our Savior is and what kind of people He calls us to be. Because Jesus gives etiquette lessons in the chapter Luke 14. And so let's pick it up, verse 1. In verse 1, one Sabbath, when He went He went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully. This was always the case. They were checking him out. We often get the sense that they were always antagonistic. I'm not sure they always were. I think there were some Pharisees, some chief rulers, who were seriously inquisitive about Jesus. In fact, we read in the book of Acts that later many priests came to believe in who Jesus was. But this is the testing out time. He's going into the home of another Pharisee, a ruler of the Pharisees, probably someone in the Sanhedrin, and someone who was well-known to everyone. It's a gathering in his house for a meal. Maybe um, not unlike what you're going to do Thursday. Uh, A big gathering and a meal and share table fellowship with a group of people. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Dropsy is probably... um, Edema, uh, a condition of water retention, the accumulation of fluids in the body cavity, which results in bloating, and he was probably somewhat distorted-looking. And the Pharisee's idea of, of sickness was that sickness was the result of sin. And if he was sick, he probably hadn't been invited, but wandered in on the periphery. That's my sense. And when you get to verse 3, watch what happens. In verse 3, Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But those who were watching him carefully remained silent. They didn't answer. They were sure that if they answered, it isn't lawful, Jesus would say, show me where it is. In the law. And it's not in the law. It was in their regulations that they had cultivated over time. They had added on to the law of Moses, but it's not written in the Torah, in the law of Moses, not to do that. So then he took him. That is a very interesting word. It means to seize. So imagine the Pharisees gathered around the table and Jesus is there and this man with dropsy who probably was a sight to see and Jesus takes him. It's a word that like is to seize. I don't know exactly, but I imagine that Jesus wrapped his arms around him and he healed him and he said, you can go you don't have to stay here at this party. And probably he didn't want to because he couldn't wait to go home and tell his wife and his family of what had happened to him. But Jesus heals him there in the moment. Now they're looking at him carefully. They're not saying, didn't answer his question. And then um, verse five, he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out. Which one? Every one of you would. And they could not reply to these things. Listen, this is a picture of Jesus demonstrating his love for people in every condition. And there are a group of people who are eyeing him over like people do today at this very day, evaluating whether Jesus can be trusted or not. And we get a glimpse at Jesus loving people, the the people who are hosting the party and the people who are there on the periphery with great ailments. This man with dropsy and Jesus heals him. He does good on the Sabbath. If I look about anything about Jesus, Jesus always wanted to do good to people. When it's spoken of him in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, Paul's announcement about who Jesus was, he described him as being the man around Jerusalem who went around doing good and healing people and preaching. And it said first of Jesus that he went around doing good. So is this a surprise that when you go to the New Testament, it says of all Christians that we've been saved by grace through faith, not by works, but by believing in Christ alone. For we are his workmanship created for everybody. Good works. Why do we have as our mission to be called by God to do good works? Because Jesus did good works and we follow him. He went around doing good. It was always right to do good. And here he is doing good on the Sabbath. And you know what happened? That uh, this is a little clue that they didn't know how to answer him. And when they asked this question, would you not do kindness to your own son or to your own ox, whichever you loved more? And the answer is, of course I would. I would do good. I, I would rescue that. And they didn't answer. They were condemned in their judgment. They had no word to say. They didn't answer before, so they couldn't answer now, and they were silenced. Do you know that the way God promises to work in a world that is antagonistic to Him is that His people engage in good deeds so rigorously that the world sees something about His people that is so distinct that they know there's something about their relationship to their Heavenly Father? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your and glorify God. In First Peter chapter 2, Peter actually says, this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So every time there's antagonism that you're a Christian, you're a Christian, but you do good. And the The whole body of Christ at Calvary Bible Church is deployed into the world doing good in all kinds of quiet, secret ways as unto the Lord. It doesn't always happen, but there is this softening where people say, what is it about you? And it's in this context that Peter goes on to say um, that you would be able to give an answer to everyone who asks the hope that is in you. Why? because I can see something different about you. Jesus is giving a little lesson here about party etiquette. You might put that in your mind as you think about this Thursday, um, because the next one gets even better. Jesus tells parables, and he's doing miracles. Here's a miracle. I want to just say something about the general sweep of miracles in the life of Jesus and in the Bible altogether. In the Bible, miracles are show up in a proliferation whenever the word of God from heaven is coming down through a prophet, through Moses, and especially through Jesus and the apostles. And God gave specific big seasons of lots of miracles when his word was being spoken because the miracles were authenticating the word that was being given. So when you see a miracle like this, which is sort of understated that Jesus just took them, healed them, sent them out, and uh, you know, the second blessing for him was that he didn't have to stay with the Pharisees for lunch. But God gave a miracle because the words he was saying, he wanted us to hear. And so now we're going to go to sort of the second mark. If the first mark that Jesus wants his people to be like, it's to do good at all times. we leave this let me just give you this quote from john wesley john wesley said do all the good you can in all the ways you can in all the places you can at all the times you can to all the people you can as long as you ever can why because that's his call on our life I have a friend named Garth. He's six two. He's got a bald head. He's got a big smile, and he loves Jesus. And when I talk with him, sometimes when I'm talking with him, he will just break out and say, "Well, let's just pray about that. And in the middle of our conversation, he'll just say, "Jesus, I pray for, and off he goes praying. He really stays in step with the Lord. He told me a couple of weeks ago that, He was on his way home from work and he stopped at the gas station and he was filling up his car and he looked up and at the other pump just across the way was a beautiful brand new Audi A6, which he appreciated. And a young African-American guy got out of the car, went to get the gas, and he just looked over at him and smiled and nodded. He finished filling up went into the little store, got a package of peanuts and Coke for the drive home. And as he was coming out of the store, he opened the door and in came this young man. And he held the door open and he smiled at him. He said, have a great day. Went to his car, got in his car, got settled in, started to drive away. And out of the store, this young man ran to the car, banged on his window, rolled down the window, He said, can we talk? He said, yeah. He said, I'm having the worst day of my life. I got out of my car, was putting gas in, and I just said, God, do you even see me? And I looked up, and you were smiling and nodding at me. And then when I went into the store, you opened the door and said, Have a great day. My name is Keith. Could we be friends? And my friend Garth has been meeting with him about every two weeks. I mean, you think about the gentleness of a look, a smile, a nod, a word. And you haven't even gotten to good deeds really yet. But, but how much power is in the kindness of Jesus in in this place to this man and to everyone? And what does he ask us to do? Do good on the Sabbath and every day. And there are no man-made restrictions to doing good because God is good. You with me? All right, next. The next episode begins in verse seven. And I have to imagine that what happened here when this uh, ruler of the Pharisees calls a lunch, the way lunch happened or a dinner or a feast is there is a low table to the ground and then there are couches that are set around it in the shape of a U. And the head of the table in uh, this custom was right in the center and then away from the center, uh, low couches were put by the table and guests would recline on their left elbow and sort of with their feet away from the table and they would eat with their right hand and the guest the, the host would sit in the center and the guests of honor would then be closest to him and put down so i imagine what happened is that when this dinner was called people scrambled to their place and perhaps jesus was put at a place of honor i presume he probably was but he noticed, I'm sure, the way they were gathering around. So in verse 7, he told a parable to those who were invited when he, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor saying to them. So he was watching the way they assembled at the table, and then he said, verse 8, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, I like that he used the wedding feast so that not to indict them about this feast. Do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited both of you will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you'll begin the walk of shame. (laughs) You'll, You'll begin the walk down to take the lowest place. And when you're invited, go sit in the lowest place. And when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. This is a Bob Euker moment. You know, he's that somebody gathers in there and then he's at the place of prominence and somebody else comes in and say, no, I've got the mayor of the town and he's going to sit there. Would you by that time, every other place is filled up. So the only one left is the very lowest place. He's just telling etiquette about how how when you come in to this kind of a meal, you defer to others and be in a position of humility and wait to be invited up to someplace else. It's just dinner etiquette. Or is it? It's actually a spiritual principle. And we know that because verse 11 says this. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And what Jesus tells, secondly, is not only to do good, but like to have an ethic an ethic of humility because you are a kingdom person. And what he's really conveying is that humility is a, a virtue that God loves, God honors, God blesses. Every good Jewish student of Torah would know this. In the Proverbs 29.23, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. This was simply a way of life for the Jews. They knew that, but did they practice it? Not normally. Just turn over to chapter 18 for a minute and let me show you uh, how often this phrase shows up. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells another parable, a story told to convey a spiritual truth. And two men went up to the temple to pray. Verse 10, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee waxed eloquent about all of his credentials and his good behavior, all the things he was good at. But verse 13, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. And he beat his breast, and he cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is the one who went down justified rather than the other, for... Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The spiritual axiom. When Jesus told the story about where to sit on the couches around the table, he was conveying that this is the way you enter the kingdom of God, which he said in another place in Matthew chapter 18, when the disciples came to him saying, Lord, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And what did Jesus do? Bent down, scooped up a little child. And holding that child... Calling him to the midst of him, he said, Truly, unless you become like this child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like the child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of God. What does it take to enter the kingdom of heaven? Not hubris, humility, brokenness. The sacrifices of God are broken and a contrite spirit. And Jesus is simply using this parable about how to sit at a party you're invited to with how to come before God in brokenness before Him. You know, those who walked with Jesus for all of their life knew this. So it's not surprising when you read James and you read 1 Peter, you see things that are very similar. If you have your Bible, James chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, James um, says, God gives more grace, verse 6, Therefore, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So submit yourself to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. James knew that humbling yourself before God is the key to being received by God. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6, um, I love this summary. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, and casting all of your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. For some of you, this could be the verse that you should take home this week and be the memory verse for the rest of your life because there are several things that you should know about this verse. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the what kind of hand? Mighty, which says God is able. He has a strong right arm so that the proper time He may exalt you, which might not be now, because He promises that sometimes we will walk through the valley, and we will suffer, and we may go through hardship, and all of life isn't riding on a cloud. We, we have challenges as He had challenges. We suffer as He suffers. But at the proper time, which in the most ultimate sense is to be ushered into His presence for all of eternity, He will exalt you. And so you're free to cast how many? All if you can. And then give him back again and give him back again. All of your anxieties on him because in addition to having a strong right hand, what is he like? He cares for you. It's one thing if God were powerful but he didn't care or if he cared but he wasn't powerful. But Peter's saying you should humble yourself under his hand because he's strong and he loves you. And what better place is there to be? Jesus is telling something about the kingdom ethic for his people. It's a spirit of humility, a brokenness before him, of people who can bow down and say, "Um, I want to trust in him. Now, he's not done talking about the whole episode of uh, uh, coming to a party. In fact, you see... He said to the man who had invited him, verse 12. He's going to talk about having a kingdom party, um, a, 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 a dinner party. And to him, he's he's going to say, you know, you usually invite the most successful people to your party. I don't know who's coming to your Thanksgiving table, but, you know, when, when they would throw a party, they would get the most distinguished people, the who's who, the most successful, the most beautiful And, you know, we have a culture of celebrity, and so we get this. But Jesus said, when you do that, verse 12, when you give a dinner party or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives. Do you get an amen to that? No, I'm just kidding. Or your rich neighbors. But what's the purpose? Lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. Jesus is talking about um, doing something in a selfless, humble kind of way. Every time you invite your neighbors or invite someone, they're going to say, Oh, well, I'll have you over soon. And Jesus said, No, verse 13, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just in this way jesus is saying here's another kingdom ethic is that we learn how to give in generosity without the anticipation of acknowledgement or return here and that is hard but he says you should invite people who have no capacity to pay you back w- why do you suppose that is because you are a kingdom person And you do good to as many as you can all the time and you have a heart of humility and you give in the spirit of generosity without the anticipation of being paid back because you absolutely know the one that you serve is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the king of glory who sees all things. And here it is, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. What happens when you invite those who can't return favor to you? You are laying up treasure in heaven. You are putting away for the future an eternal reward that is known to God and will be known to you, but no one else may may notice. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. This this is the sense of being someone who, who loves and gives in a real spirit of generosity. This is what it means to be in the kingdom. And Jesus simply giving some more of these lessons. Do you have it? I think our world is literally dying to see the transformed lives of kingdom people who do good all the time, who are humble, not cocky. We don't need any more cocky Christians. And who give in a spirit of generosity that says, I I, I don't even care if anybody notices what I'm doing. I'm going to give this, and I'm going to serve the least and the last and the lost, and I do it as unto the Lord. Have you ever thought about your generosity as being completely as unto the Lord? And the Lord will reward you, and He will not forget. What's the best way to conclude? Verse 34 and 35. I think Jesus is talking about, what are my people like? Verse 34 says, salt is good. What's it good for? Makes things tastier. And in the first century, it was primarily used as a preservative to keep things from rotting. So you could preserve meat in the same way that we might produce beef jerky or turkey jerky or whatever jerky because the salt dries it and preserves it. And that's what salt is good for. Salt is good, but if it loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, if you're a scientist or a chemist, you you might take umbrage with this statement, can salt lose its saltiness? But there actually was a little chemical around the Dead Sea that was called equivalent of gypsum that actually would compromise salt in its day. But I'm sure Jesus is primarily talking about an illustration that if salt isn't salty, what's it good for? Absolutely nothing. It can't even be put into the manure pile because it will ruin the composting. So you can't even put it in the dung pile. What's it good for? nothing. It's trampled underfoot. You throw it out, it's no good. And you are the salt of the earth, Jesus said. But if it's salt, has lost its saltiness. It's only good to be put on the sidewalk to be trampled underfoot, which is a way we use salt right now. So he's saying to his kingdom people, you're my people. Are you salty? And is there any preserving sense in boulder that the church is here restraining evil doing good holding back judgment is there any way in which christians help preserve the work of god in the world by our presence last week i was with a group of people traveling and there was a guy who helped us for most of the week and at the end of the week, we were just saying goodbye to him. We laid our hands and prayed, on, prayed for him. And when we were done praying for him, he, he stopped and said, um, this reminds me of something that happened in my life 14 years ago yesterday. And um, if you don't mind, I'd like to tell you, it, it's become the story of my life that anchored me. 14 years ago yesterday, I was in a bar sitting at a bar with a beer in front of me. And a man came in behind me dressed in black and stood next to me and ordered a beer at the table. And I looked up at him and I said, I just wish I could stop. And the man whom I'd never seen before said, would you mind if I prayed for you? And he said, yeah. He said, he stood behind me and put his hands on my shoulder and he prayed for my sobriety. And prayed for my life and when he said amen he left and I pushed that beer away from me I've never had another drink that was 14 years and one day ago yesterday about 2 o'clock I thought that's the salty Christian preserving saving helping doing good being the hands of Jesus in a place. If the salt isn't salty, what's it good for? Nothing. I think Jesus told these stories and parables and interacting with people in order to call his church to be some kind of church that's different, distinct, and can live in a world that doesn't know him so that in little tiny places we can help. Make him known. We live in such a city. We are that kind of people. Let's pray that Christ will be our center. Let's pray together. Well, Father, thank you for a glimpse at the beautiful life of Jesus, who loved people, was good to people, helped people, humbled himself to become a man who served unto death and now calls us to be the kind of people who are salt and light in a world that so needs to know the gentle, loving, healing, saving Jesus. We love you, Lord Jesus. And we pray that in whatever way we've heard you speak today or seen you act, we ourselves might renounce our sinfulness and selfishness. We might humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and be people who follow a Savior who changes the world. And one life at a time, one person we connect with this week, would you just let us be good representatives of Jesus? Let us be the taste of grace to people in need. Let us be the saltiness that causes people to say, I need the living water. Do that, God, for your glory as your kingdom spreads here outside of the walls of this church into the city and county and state and the world and wherever you send us until until Jesus is known to be the sweet Savior you are. In your name we pray. Amen.